Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. chicken I get the rumble seat ride I get the leaky umbrella everyone shoves me aside when I wake up each day with the dawn sure as fate I'm too late and all the hot water's gone I get the neck of the chicken I get the hand-me-down tie I get the cot in the kitchen I get the small piece of pie that's why I can't can't get over this dream come true. Now, if I get the next of the chicken, how did I ever get you? So you don't want to be that guy, right? Nobody wants to be that person who doesn't get the good stuff. And that's very much behind a movement towards independent recommendations about products uh, that has culminated in the current moment. The reason we're doing this show is because of a piece in The Atlantic by Charlie Warzel. Uh, suggesting that there is growing discontent with the site called Wirecutter. Wirecutter started uh, kind of independently on the web. I think it had something to do with a publication called The All, A-W-L, which doesn't exist anymore. It was eventually bought by the New York Times. And I'll be honest, I, you know, it's just the emails pop up on, on my email feed and I look at what they have to say and Wirecutter's pretty good also at just making you want to open that email. Oh, yeah, that's something I probably need to know about. <laughs> I probably have the wrong water bottle right now. Uh, and so it's been a, a pretty successful model. But there's a sense in the Warzel article and elsewhere. I started looking in other places. And, yes, on the interwebs, there's this kind of sense that Wirecutter isn't as good as it used to be, isn't as reliable as it used to be, that it scaled. It was forced to scale up when it was bought by the New York Times and just push more content out there because of the business model they have. We'll get to that. Uh, and and just maybe it isn't the thing that it used to be. And that got me thinking, you know, there one thing there isn't is a Consumer Reports or a Wirecutter or, or a Strategist to rate all the sites like Consumer Reports, Wirecutter, and the Strategist. So I thought we could at least have a conversation about all of that. We will do that today uh, in the middle segment. You'll hear from somebody who was on the original Wirecutter staff and has was there a long time. At the end of the show, you'll hear about a site called a site and newsletter called Recommendo. I, I, I want to say it like uh, Ed Sullivan. Recommendo, before we bring out Recommendo. Um, but it's really fun, very interesting, kind of a different vibe. Uh, but we need to ta- start with the great gray lady. Uh, we've got to start with Consumer Reports. Consumer Reports uh, is an amazing entity. It doesn't run the way the rest of these do. It has more than 6 million subscribers. It's, it tests more than 2,000 products every year. It buys all those products. They spend, I haven't seen current figures, but typically they spend two million, more than $2 million a year just buying cars that they're going to test because they're not going to accept a sample car or a loaner or something like that. They buy the cars, then they test them. They test them quite near to where I'm sitting, by the way. Uh, they test them uh, in a place called East Haddam, Connecticut, uh, on a former drag strip. Uh, it's, an, it's a subscription-based nonprofit model. They don't accept advertising. They never will. 
um, you can if you if you have a subscription to Consumer Reports, you get to vote on on the board of directors. Uh, if you're a paid member, you're eligible to cast a vote for Consumer Reports Board of Directors that will be elected at their annual meeting. That is happening next month, by the way. So, yeah, it sounds like I know a lot about Consumer Reports. Uh, but I didn't know anything about what we're about to talk about with our first guest. Our first guest is Inger Stoll, uh, Professor Emerita at the University of Illinois. Uh, and this is a, a really startling story. It's the story of how Consumer Reports came to be. I knew nothing about this. So, uh, first of all, Inger Stoll, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. So, this is a great story. It kind of begins coterminously with the birth of advertising, or at least the birth of, uh, of you know, mass product advertising. There's suddenly an industry that exists to sell us things that come from other industries. Uh, and to do that, this industry will make lots of claims about the benefits uh, of some of these products. When things like Coca-Cola and Moxie were first on the market, they were kind of marketed almost like patent medicines that would you know, increase your brain strength and your manhood and all this other stuff. So somebody had to come along and say, well, which claims are true and which claims are not? And I sense that's a little bit of the birth of Consumer Reports. Uh, you're correct. Uh, basically, uh, um, tagging on to what you just said, uh, much of the early critique of advertising uh, centered around the fact that advertising didn't really provide much in terms of information. Uh, these were uh, mass uh, marketed uh, commodities that basically asked people, invited people to uh, sort of, uh, you know, gain psychological satisfaction from buying products that were much higher priced, uh, but basically the same as the stuff they would buy uh, from the corner grocer in bulk at much cheaper prices. Uh, so uh, in, uh, you know, and so advertising, national advertising uh, like that came on the scene in the 1880s. Uh, a lot of, you know, names we recognize today, Coca-Cola, Kellogg's, Quaker Oats, Cream of Wheat, Procter & Gamble, and so on and so forth, sort of got their start then, and then it just grew and grew and grew. And after World War I, advertising was exploding uh, in America. And uh, consumers were sort of left in the lurk as to what they were really buying. You might buy a soap uh, with a pretty movie star on the, on the advertisement or wrapper, but... You, what did you know about the quality of the soap itself? Was it better uh, or the same as something you could buy cheaper, uh, generic, or in bulk? Right. And I think another thing that's beginning to happen is that there is more choice available. I mean, for a long time, uh, whatever the general store was or Montgomery Ward or Sears Roebuck or whatever you had in your town, they had an awful lot to say about even what choices you could make. But there's a little bit more competition co coming. There's going to be a huge boom in it after World War II. But it's starting to make sense to tell people uh, a little bit more about what's behind the advertising, and if they have a choice, which thing should they choose? And these two men come along to do this, uh, and uh, a very interesting little soap opera ensues between them. But so tell us, it's Arthur Callet and F. J. Schlink, I believe. Correct, and uh, they actually in 1929 uh, formed something called Consumers Research, and uh, just to back up. A Second, uh, 
that was sort of in response to a book that Callot and his co-author uh, Stuart Chase had written in 1927. It was called Your Money's Worth, and it was a really famous uh, book at the time. And what they argued was that advertising really misled consumers in made them waste a lot of money on items that could buy much cheaper, uh, you know, elsewhere if they didn't rely on the branded uh, name. And they also made this really interesting claim that, you know, when businesses themselves or government went out to buy uh, products, they would not rely on advertising. They bought on specification. They bought on what the product really was. I mean, uh, (laughs) they looked at the standard and the quality, not whether it was a beautiful movie star you know, advertising uh, nuts and bolts or whatever they needed. Right. So they're doing this and, and corporations don't like this and they know that they know that corporations are not going to like this, this idea of an independent evaluation that cuts through the cant uh, of advertising. Uh, one thing they do is they actually publish two different versions of their report, right? One of them is uh, for a broader distribution. The other is for subscribers only, and they're not supposed to talk about it to anybody else because they're worried about lawsuits. Yes, you're right. So so when they started consumers research, it was basically a testing facility. They would test uh, you know, products that were on the market, uh, advertised products, and uh, they would uh, you know, classify them as uh, acceptable or non-acceptable. Um, and uh, you know, they would rate them best buy, so on and so forth, bad buy. And uh, often consumers would see from reading this that, you know, basically it was better to buy something that was generic. And as a result, they worried about lawsuits, obviously, uh, that that corporations would come back and and, and take them to court because they didn't have a lot of money. This was a real shoestring operation. Uh, They relied on liberal foundations, uh, individual skills from some of their friends in in you know in academia you know and so on and so forth so uh, they they were scared about doing this they were, they were worried uh, obviously so this amazing thing that happens in 1935 which is that the consumer research workers they want to unionize uh, and this creates a schism right you've got Schlink who doesn't want to listen to the demands of the workers doesn't want to pay fair wages uh, wants to keep as much he's sort of just like the the corporations that the, they've been evaluating and critiquing he would like to uh, keep uh, quite a lot of the money Callet is a very different kind of person a progressive so there's a schism they break apart. Uh, and and you've got consumer research under Schlink, and then Callet starts something called the Consumers Union, which is not only friendly to the demands and needs of the union of consumer research or former now consumer research workers, but it's sort of friendly to unions generally, right? This becomes a question worth asking about a product. Who made it? What kind of representation do they have in the world of labor? Exactly, and 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 uh, really, the, the the sort of the discussion in academic circles is really how did that happen to Schlink? Did he was he always this way, or did this change? But that could be for another day. But basically, you're right, uh, and uh, they were uh, they were a, a big strike. Uh, workers uh, uh, voted for a union. Uh, uh, the Schlink side of uh, consumers' research uh, refused to recognize it. There were violent incidents. There was it was really pretty bad. So Kala takes the people who support him and creates Consumers Union, which of course today is the published publisher of Consumers Report. 
and that's in 1936. And really quickly, his uh, uh, um, organization, which in addition to rating uh, products uh, on quality, also rate them on uh, the conditions under which they are uh, produced. So are, is, it, is the product produced in a, in a union factory uh, or not? Uh, and to sort of push manufacturers towards, you know, accepting unions in their workplace is one thing, but also for workers to know that, that piece of fact. Um, it's very popular and it, it eclipses uh, consumers' research really quickly. And Schlink, of course, is really angry about this. Right. So he does some backstabbing, right? And we head into the time uh, as we're beginning to kind of get into the red sec- second Red Scare from the McCarthy era. There's a way in which maybe this the Consumers Union can be painted as, as a little bit pink. Well, exactly. Because uh, there's, of course, as you mentioned, there's a huge business you know, backlash against consumers research and then later uh, consumers union for doing this because they want people to to rely on advertising, obviously. Uh, but in 1937, an, uh, a special committee to investigate un-American activities uh, is, uh, you know, created in Congress. And uh, the uh, official title was to combat subversive elements in American society, fascist and communist. But in fact, most of the attention went towards, you know, ridding America of communists. This is the precursor for that for the uh, UAC or uh, an American activities a committee that ended in 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 the fifties or actually later in the sixties. It went on forever, uh, but it really allowed Schlink a way in to uh, to uh, to attack Khaled uh, 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 because he one of his uh, sidekicks, a guy named uh, you know. Matthews uh, was somehow uh, allowed to be on this uh, committee, uh, also referred to as the Dice Committee, and he became the uh, research director. And as a research director, he pushed really strongly for dragging in consumers' union as an example of a communist-driven, un-American, unpatriotic uh, organization. And uh, it was pretty brutal that just sort of dragged them you know in front of this committee and uh they had really good arguments saying oh if it's you know it's communist to help american consumers get a good deal and be competitive then i think this country is in really doo-doo right mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that was sort of the rest of the committee many of the people were fortunately more level-headed than than dice uh who was clearly with uh the uh, the shrink uh, element here uh but uh, Schenck was so went so nuts that he went on the stand and sort of indicted the entire American consumer movement, which by that time had grown really big in size. Uh, and then people realized that this is completely nuts. And and he was just you know driven by his own you know anger and embarrassment that he had been eclipsed and and the model that Consumers Union uh, was pushing forward was so much successful. So, you know, as we look at Consumer Reports today, there's been there have been several more iterations and, and evolutions of it. But in some ways, it has kept to this idea that this is an entity that exists for the people. It's a nonprofit entity uh, and that it has to be aware of not just, you know, which dishwasher is better than another dishwasher or which glass cleaner is better than another glass cleaner. But what's the subtext? What's the cultural subtext? What's the political subtext? I mean, they spend a lot 
lot of time lobbying and 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 working on public issues. I mean, within. 20, in the fiscal year 2022, for example, President Biden signed an infant safety law that was championed by Consumer Consumer Reports uh, and, and, and had in it stuff that they had worked on, certainly to the extent that anybody's worried about PFAs um, uh, in, in water bottles and fast food wrappers and stuff like that. Consumer Reports has led the way on that research. They, they not only published a lot of that research, but they turned it into law and regulations they worked on that. Here in Connecticut, uh, last year, Connecticut passed a comprehensive privacy law, which grants consumers the right to access, delete, and stop the sale of their personal information. Consumer Reports worked with consumers and state lawmakers on the language of that bill. This is the stuff that they do that's a little less obvious than telling you what's the best mid-sized SUV every year. Um, but it seems like, to me, it's it's a little bit closer to the spirit of that guy, this guy, Callet, who had this very, you know, idealistic idea about that. But there's a way in which I feel like Consumer Reports has become unfashionable. You know, it's like wire cutter and strategists and stuff like that. Those are the hip, cool things that the young people like. Uh, and <laughs> Consumer Reports is for old people like me. Although I, I, I look at all that other stuff, too. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? How that ever happened? Uh, well, I, I, I don't really know... I, I just know that when, when uh, you know, I used, used to ask my students because I taught this stuff in, mm. in, uh, at the University of Illinois. And, you know, I would say, well, you know, do any of you, you know, read consumers' uh, research? None answer. It might be because they didn't pay attention. I don't know. But uh, I said, so what about your parents? What is that? I said, well, you know, if you buy a dishwasher or a car or whatever, do you ever know they had no clue? So it might be a generational thing, and uh, it might be that some of the products that are being tested are sort of more, you know, products. Uh, I don't know. It might not be super hip and fashionable products. I don't know. I, I, I'm sort of grasping here a little right. bit. Right. Well, I, I can sort of supply a little bit of context. Right. It's, it's, yeah. it's, not, it's not consumers report, and if anyone there ever listened to this, don't take, take no offense, but it is not really hip. Well, I think they recognize that. They've tried to deal with that. They rebranded as CR uh, in, in 2016, I think it was. And they know they've got a problem. They know that they have a problem kind of approaching that younger audience. And, you know, if you look at some of the stuff that they review these days, I mean, it, it, it's a little bit more of, you know, buy eyeglasses like a pro, expert advice on frames, lenses, coatings. <laughs> and it's like, you know, how do you go to Warby Parker and pick out your frames and stuff like that? I think they know they've got an issue. But I think it, it is important to say, though, that this that guy Callet, the view, the the vision he had. I didn't know anything about this story and the way that his former partner tried to destroy him. But I think it's sort of there in a very important way. And certainly during the debate about American health care in, in, from 08 to, say, 2012, Consumer Reports played a really important role in evaluating the state of American health care, the state of American health insurance. One of their reporters, happens to be somebody I know quite well, sat down with President Obama for an extensive, in-depth conversation uh, about the state of American healthcare. I don't think anybody from Wirecutter could do something like that. So I, I, I sort of feel, still feel like Consumer Reports. You know, we owe them a lot. Um, yeah, but- and it could also be that you know they uh, they they aren't as visible. I mean, a lot of the work they do uh, is sort of behind the scenes. It wouldn't really be very obvious. It's not creating headlines, uh, you know, to do this stuff so much. Right. 
Well, we're going to pause now. Uh, thank you so much, Inger Stoll, Professor Emerita at the University of Illinois. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to talk uh, about the charms and allures of wire cutter, uh, charms and allures to which I confess I have been seduced. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. When I became of age, my mother called me to her side. She said, son, you're growing up now. Pretty soon you'll take a bride. And then she said, just because you become a young man now, there's still some things that you don't understand now. Before you ask some girl for a hand now, keep your freedom for as long as you can now. My mama told me, you better shop around. All right, Smokey, thank you so much. Now it's time to talk about wire cutter. I fell in love with wire cutter just like everybody else. Uh, and here to explain a little bit about how wire cutter works and what makes it what it is uh, is Michael Zhao, uh, who is the first employee and the former deputy, deputy editor at wire cutter. Michael, welcome to our conversation. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. So, talk a little bit about the about the origins. I mean, there's we've just been talking about Consumer Reports. Consumer Reports had to figure out how to go digital. They'd been around for so long. They're they're the opposite of digital natives. But there's a way in which Wirecutter its birth seems to be so totally tied to online culture uh, and digital startups. Uh, it was a digital startup, right? Yeah, and it's not just uh, you know the culture, but the name itself is uh, part of that origin you know brian the founder used to be the editor-in-chief of gizmodo and you'd have all these water cooler chats with other people who were reviewing electronics you know cameras uh mp3 players laptops and you know these are people who do this for a living and if you ask them offline like hey what would you recommend for your dad to buy or whatever um they would have an answer off the cuff and uh you know, they they would have X, Y, Z reasons for that. 
but it was hard to find that information because the way reviews were published was like, well, we're testing this laptop and that laptop and they each get a score, but you, there's nowhere you can see them all together. Um, and so the idea there was like, okay, well, you know, we all work reviewing electronics. Like what is the thing that we would recommend to a friend or a family member? Let's just publish that as an article. Right. That, you guys call that, I think, the where the chefs eat concept. Explain that reference. Oh, yeah. that uh, I use that personally. I wouldn't say, no. say that others use it necessarily. But um, basically, it's like if you ask a chef where to eat, they're not going to tell you the same thing as the Michelin Guide or, you know, the New York Times Review or whatever. They're going to tell you the place that, you know, serves the thing that like they know that you're going to like based on what they know about you and what they know about themselves. And, um, you know, it's 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 a more personalized recommendation coming from, you know, a place of empathy. Right. Uh, and by the way, I, I discovered this, that you could do this in an even simpler way. I don't know why, but it was it's whenever I eat in, Mon- in Montreal, I'll always say to the waitstaff at the end of the night, I mean, whoever's the, my server, but maybe sometimes a couple other people get beckoned over, where should I, where should we eat tomorrow night? <laughs> and it's really interesting because they really have opinions about where we should eat tomorrow night, and they'll and they get really excited about it, and and that's I think some of the fun uh, uh, of that kind of tourism and eating, but it's also some of the fun of wire cutter. I think there's a way in which wire cutter also kind of uses storytelling, right? There's a way in which you're telling us there's a narrative to this stuff. I mean, Consumer Reports, you know, you don't really know the names of anybody who's doing anything or what they did. But you guys used, uh, I think, a kind of narrative arc sometimes in in your reporting. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that's part of what people respond to, right? We want to know what it's like to have the lived experience of using and living with a product before we buy it, ideally. And, you know, that's why we ask family and friends or we look at user reviews or, you know, watch videos and stuff. But, um, you know, there's there's always will be, I think, this audience of people who absorb this information best through a combination of words and pictures. And, you know, sometimes there's like a story to be told there as well. You know, uh, I remember um, back in 2012, I believe, we reviewed bike locks for the first time yeah. and the uh, features reporter whom we had hired to go out and uh, spend as much time as he needed to do all the research uh, ended up encountering uh, and interviewing uh, what he believes to be the exact same thief who stole his custom road bike a few months prior based on their conversation. So, you know, when you get a story like that in your reporting, it's always so great to be able to include that in the, uh, in the piece, because that, you know, ultimately ends up being the thing that people are going to catch on to and end up talking about. And, you know, that's just a way to reach a bigger audience and, you know, get more of a entertainment in addition to the recommendation. I think also there, you know, there's sort of a way in which I think recommendation sites make their mark in the world with certain things. Uh, they become kind of well known for them, and it becomes a sort of on ramp to the site. And I actually think maybe the first time I ever bought anything because it was recommended by Wirecutter and because of the way it was recommended by Wirecutter was an air purifier. Because during the pandemic, we got really interested, uh, a lot of us, in the air quality in our houses or in our offices, wherever. Uh, and But you guys had just sort of really gone to town, right? This was in some ways the first sort of Moby Dick you know, piece by, by Wirecutter. Say a little bit more about that. 
Yeah. So, you know, we, in, in the early days, we were always paying um, freelancers by the hour to get it right. And we would always want to find the most passionate, knowledgeable people who, uh, of the topic that they were covering as possible. And we originally approached um, this expert as a, uh, you know, potential interviewee, but he ended up being so interested uh, that he wanted to help um, do research and testing himself. And he was a, a, a former NOAA uh, atmospheric particles physicist. <laughs> so you couldn't imagine a more authoritative uh, source on air quality. And, you know, he re he was super excited about what we had proposed and, you know, came up with a whole suite of tests and we ordered custom gear for him. And, you know, it was uh, it was a really impressive uh, piece to be working on. And this was, you know, back in 2012, 2013 as well. So you know, now you have all kinds of air purifier reviews. But uh, back then we were seemingly the only people who were, um, you know, tell not only doing that work, but then also telling the story of doing the work. And I think, you know, conveying that kind of expertise uh, helped us build a dedicated following, as as you said. I, I don't know if you have any anecdotes or information about this. This is something that kind of popped up as I was doing some general research this morning, and I started to wonder about it. And I think I might have even experienced this, too, uh, which is the, the thing where something gets a really positive review in Wirecutter, or Consumer Reports, for that matter, and then suddenly you can't buy it anymore. <laughs> Uh, you go to Amazon and there's uh, you have, you have to back order it. Um, is that a thing? Is that a thing that you guys became aware of? Yeah, I mean, this was a problem dating back to as early as you know, 2013, 2014 was when we first started noticing it, which is, um, you know, we would crown something to pick and then, you know, be, we weren't ever in communication with the manufacturer or the brands or whatever about you know, oh, this thing is going to be the pick or whatever. And um, so they didn't have any heads up. Uh, we didn't give them any heads up. And we've run into inventory issues sometimes immediately, like same day. Uh, and so from that, we started doing like a runner up pick, mm -hmm. which is basically second place. And, um, you know, sometimes it's even the better pick for someone who might have a different set of priorities than what we calibrated into the our decision making for the top pick. So, you know, pretty much anything from the budget to the upgrade would be something that's high quality that we would live with in our own homes. Yeah, there are a couple of things in that statement that I want to unpack, but I also want to say that today I just noticed that Consumer Reports had recommended an electric toothbrush called, the brand is B-R-U-U-S-H, I think. <laughs> um, and I went to their site. They don't have any electric toothbrushes right now. <laughs> they don't have any. <laughs> like every single kind that they have, it just says sold out. You, here, Click here if you want to be notified when we have some. Um, and and I, it just struck me as, well, somebody should have thought that through <laughs> differently somehow. Mm -hmm. uh, and at least the Consumer Reports thing should have a warning. And if you click on this, you're probably not going to be able to get it. But, you know, you said some really interesting things there, and I want to talk about them too. I mean, one of the things that Wirecutter has typically done in the past uh, and, and still does is, yeah, there's a maybe a first and a runner-up, or there might be a first and a runner-up, and um, 
uh, a high-end pick and a budget pick. You know, you might see as many as four. And then if you want to know about everything else, there's like more reading. But there's a way in which the format of Wirecut is, Wirecutter is so user-friendly that I am thinking, well, they just told me these four things. I'm not going to read all the other stuff that's there. So there's a way in which uh, th- that kind of creates uh, um, a special kind of thirst for a product, right? Yeah, definitely. You know, um, it, I wouldn't necessarily say it was by design, more like evolution and then later designed into that format um, because, you know, people, some people want to read the whole thing and like that's that's what uh, the reviews are all about, right? Like if you can convince someone who is willing to read the whole thing about why these are the best options, then they, then you can convince anyone. And you, you read enough of these and then you just say like, oh, okay, well, I, I trust that they've done the work here. And like, I don't really care too much about this, I don't know, uh, rubber spatula. So I'll just get the one that they're recommending. Yeah. I mean, it is a little different, different from CR where if they like seven things, seven different brands of electric toothbrush or whatever, they'll they'll t- tell you about all seven of them. And, and they'll also give you sort of a page worth of everything, including the stuff that they don't like. And your version is a little bit different. But with that in mind, I know one thing that's happened is as tech uh, as tech sort of sorts out its own bugs uh, and becomes more proficient at making things, I, 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 un- the way that I understand it anyway is increasingly the difference between uh, the excellent thing and the very good thing and the good thing is narrowing a little bit that there really are maybe, you know, 10 TVs that you really could or should buy and you wouldn't particularly be disappointed if you bought the one that was named 10th. I mean, is that a problem for for Wirecutter and for sites like that, that the, there's sort of a clustering effect near the top these days with certain kinds of products? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a problem. You know, I think of The Strategist as a website that's done, you know, a publication that's done a great job of leaning into that, right, where it's like you're recommending so many different versions of the same thing that have different styling, different price points, and, you know, they're all good enough. Maybe one of them is better from a value perspective or a pure performance perspective. But, you know, at the end of the day, for example, with like a toaster oven or a kettle, it's going to sit on your counter and you're going to look at it a lot. So even maybe you don't value performance, pure performance as much as you might matching your cabinets or complementing your cabinets. And so, you know, the, I think it's, it's ultimately, it's neither good nor bad. It's just like a little different. And I think in the grand scheme of things, it's a pretty big boon to, um, you know, consumers writ large. Um, you, because of the thing we talked about at the beginning, the what the chefs recommend thing, you don't really have to use these sites this much, that much, right? You know enough people that you can just sort of ask around. I mean, I, that's my sense anyway, is that you don't really need sites like Wirecutter as much as maybe I do. Well, you know, I, I think... Personally, I really value the trusted opinions of people who I know. And so that's kind of where I've been gravitating recently um, because, you know, you you all have that friend or in my case, multiple friends who obsess over one particular type of gear. And like, I find that 
if someone is really obsessed with bicycles or surfboards or cameras, for example, then they that sort of mindset of uh, being really particular about the quality of their gear extends to other parts of their life, like the kitchen or you know coffee and um, you know I and it, again it goes back to the whole experiential experience thing. I I really want to know that this isn't just a thing that performs well in testing. This is a thing that is nice to live with. Um, and that that's something that's kind of hard to get from just reading reviews or reading snippets or even watching a YouTube video. Because, um, you know, when, when we talk about like, oh, this is the top pick for most people, like, how do you define most people? Like, uh, it's it's pretty difficult to do. And it's kind of hand wavy in a lot of ways uh because none of us are most people in every regard so um it, it is important to sort of get that uh more personal touch to me so that i know that it's not just uh it's not just something that did well in tests and that people like to talk about it is something that people like to live with yeah i mean that whole idea of what's it like to live with this thing it is ultimately a pretty subjective thing and also there are people have different categories i mean there are going to be some people for whom the amount of noise a dishwasher makes is really really important maybe because they're the way their house is laid out it's hard to watch television if the dishwasher's gone if it's making too much noise so that's just a deal breaker for them there are other people who really can concerned about the environment. They want a dishwasher that uses the least amount of water, maybe the least amount of power. There are other people who they just don't want to touch a wet dish when they open up their dishwasher. So it better freaking dry those dishes. I mean, that that's the most people problem, right, Michael? Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely it. And, you know, I think um, sort of the proliferation of these kinds of review sites kind of addresses that problem in some kind of way it does require some work on your end to suss out like okay who is the reporter or the reviewer or the editors and like what are their priorities do mine align with them uh and you know see how they're weighting the various considerations um you know it's it's about finding something of yourself in the person doing the recommendation and you know a sort of on tangentially i think that's why uh you know influencer marketing tends to be pretty effective these days because you can see yourself or something that you would like to see yourself in this person and they're using this thing and therefore you know you as someone who aspires or identifies with that person then you would probably also enjoy that thing now since we are talking about recommendation sites uh, and because we are kind of rec making recommendations about recommendation sites and because you work for so long for a recommendation site, recommend a recommendation site for us. <laughs> What's the site that you really do like to use? That's that's not Wirecutter or one of the really super familiar ones. Yeah, so something that I am really into but maybe don't have all the time in the world to research is outdoor gear. Um and when I type the maker model of a thing into the search bar, um, I and I see Outdoor Gear Lab has covered it. That's always uh, uh, outdoorgearlab.com has covered it. That's always good news to me um, because they do a similar thing to Wirecutter, focusing primarily on outdoor gear. Um, but what they do is 
for each piece that they or for each piece of gear that they touch they write a full review um so you know best uh let's say backpacking backpacks it's not just one review that covers like the top four picks or whatever it is you know that one review but then there's also um you know for each of the backpacks that they reviewed it has its own standalone review so i can really drill into the details and see for example that uh this bag is good for is maybe got a lower score for comfort because the tester had a short torso but as a person with a longer torso i might read that and be like oh well maybe that's not such a bad thing for me i see that it's on sale i see that they like it in pretty much every other way that seems like a good fit for me right now. So I really appreciate being able to see not just all of their work and all their information on the few top picks, but also every single uh, other thing that they reviewed. Right, which by the way, and we have to end here, but I mean, that's an interesting point, which is that I think a lot of us want to passively engage with recommendations. Just tell me what to get and t- promise me I won't be disappointed. That I mean, I think that's the bargain people are looking for. But you just described a process, even with a site that you like and trust and understand and know the process of, you described a process by which you brought some of your own sensibilities. You made a fairly complicated choice uh, about a backpacker or, or whatever it was where you had to think it through a little bit. And I, I think people typically are pretty lazy <laughs> and, and might not do the thing that you just described, but it's really interesting. Um, Michael Zhao, thank you so much for spending some time with us. First employee ever and former deputy ed- editor at Wirecutter. We'll take a break. We'll come back and we're going to talk about Recommendo. I love saying this word. All right. All right. Uh, today's show was uh, produced by, by uh, McCusker, was formerly known as Carolyn McCusker. Our technical producer was Kat Pastor. Uh, and we're going to head right now into the final segment. Um, and that is about a site that we discovered. I should say, just to go back to the beginning, I got really interested in doing this show when I started to read this article by Charlie Warzel in The Atlantic talking about maybe Wirecutter is not what it used to be, uh, that it's scaled up too much, um, that it's sort of too responsive to other competitors, um, and that people are reporting dissatisfaction with some of the things that they buy after having them recommended by Wirecutter. Uh, this led me to all kinds of other places. I started just reading lots of other stuff, and a name that popped up in a couple of places was something called Recommendo. I'd never heard of it before. Uh, I loved the name. I loved the idea. So uh, joining us now is Mark Frauenfelder, co-editor of Recommendo. Welcome to our conversation. Hey, Colin. How's it going? It's going just fine. So first of all, for people who've never heard of it before, explain Recommendo. What is it? Sure. Recommendo is a weekly newsletter, and every issue has six recommendations for things that we pe- we hope people will find as rewarding as the uh, 
three of us who put the newsletter out uh, find. And so I think the the reviews, uh, it's a little bit different from Wirecutter in that we review products, but we also review things like websites that are interesting or uh, valuable in some way, uh, quotations that we've collected over uh, you know the, the preceding week, uh, great books, movies. So it just kind of really runs the gamut of things that we've found interesting. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me one of the things that makes Recommendo unusual is it often, well, I should say, first of all, with Wirecutter, I often buy stuff, well, I have in the past bought stuff on Wirecutter that I didn't think I, didn't know I wanted, and I saw it, and it looked kind of cool. I didn't even really know it existed, whatever, I got it. But you guys go a little bit further. I mean, you really do write about things and recommend things that the average person would have no idea existed. A natural language music playlist, explain that one. Um, oh, yeah. So so that was an interesting one. That's where you can just type in a description of a playlist that you uh, would love to have added to your music collection. And it will seek out, it will use AI to seek out and compile a list of songs that it thinks fits that description. And it does a a really good job of doing that. I mean, just, and, to, just, know, just, to, just to give people an example the, from, from your own work, you could type in melancholy yet strangely optimist music for the last person alive on a dying <laughs> earth, and it will respond to that prompt, right? Exactly. Yes, yes. So, so you, can, you can really like go deep into the weeds with your descriptions, and it will do a pretty good job of, of finding something that it thinks matches that description. So I've been reading a lot of recommend recommendos, or I don't know what an individual unit of recommendo recommendoids. Let's say uh, yeah, today, that's good. And and like the thing that I'm the most intrigued about and a little bit afraid of um, is something called Mind Window. Mind Window is an app developed by researchers at the University of Arizona that gives you insight and data on your thought patterns. Every day, I get six prompts at random times to reflect on what I was just thinking about. I'm I kind of want this, and I'm also afraid of it. Help me. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's one of many uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, psychological, uh, mental health uh, betterment tips that we, that we find on Recommendo. In fact, we put together an entire book based on um, those kinds of tips called Recommendo. And there's all sorts of all sorts of things uh, that, you know, there's like meditation guides, breathing guides, um, interesting quotes that people have said. Uh, so, yeah, th- that's just kind of something that we're interested in that goes beyond, you know, the typical kind of hardware, TVs, washing machines and things like that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times some of these things, I mean, Consumer Reports does this too. Consumer Reports will do articles that never mention any product. Um, and you guys do stuff that it's almost in lieu of a product. Like, do I need to buy the new water bottle I just saw in Wirecutter or do I need to go to a labyrinth and meditate? And that's where you come in. Not only do you maybe make a case for that, but tell me where the nearest labyrinth is. Yeah. You know, and in fact, one of the things that Claudia, um, one of the one of my, my co-writer, has is a do not buy list. And what she does is she kind of reviews the, her, her to buy list every once in a while and reflects on something and says, you know, I haven't, I haven't purchased this and do I really need it? And she adds it to the do not buy list. And it's a way to like 
kind of curb her spending, uh, make her reflect on her purchasing habits. It's a great idea. Um, yeah, I actually don't think I need a six pack of silly putty for adults, but but maybe I do. Um, I haven't really thought it through all that. Yeah, well. that's a, it's a great. It's a uh, silly putty is really great for people who have ADHD, like I have, and a lot of times on Zoom calls, I'll be needing a wad of silly putty. <laughs> All right, you just re- revealed something that is going to affect your super your your future Zoom calls. People are going to go, "Are you doing that right now?" Because exactly. I can sort of exactly. see your shoulder moving a little bit, like you're doing something. Um, so I don't know. I got about a minute left. I just rec- recommendo something. You recommendo anything either that's been in the newsletter or that you know is going to be or that you just like. Okay, yeah. Um, one of them that I think is a great website is called sleepinginairports.com. <laughs> and it offers great tips for uh, spending the night at an airport, whether you have to or not, making it as pleasant as possible. And they even provide a list of the best airports to sleep in. But the top one is Changi Airport in Singapore, which I've been to. And you could literally stay there for a week and not even think about the outside world. It's got its own rainforest and walking trails and super comfortable couches that you could camp out on. Um, uh, so that's that's one. Um, another quick one is uh, the Luigi Sink Plunger, which uh, is differs from a toilet pun- plunger in that it really can push a huge volume of water through the pipes of your sink to unclog sinks. Oh. I want to go to that. I want to go to the Singapore airport and just have a really great time and then come home and unplug my sink with the Luigi sink plunger. Go. I'll just be so happy all the time, either whether I'm at home or abroad. Uh, well, thank you so much for, for talking to us. And I have now signed up for Recommendo. Uh, I'm going to get in the newsletter. And Mark Frauenfelder is a co-editor of Recommendo. And thanks very much for listening today, too. You know all the cool artists and bands. You know all the best music in the world. Thank you for recommending music to me. I'd just be listening to the same five artists over and over and over again if it weren't for you and your wonderful recommendations.